scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4. As we continue our time in the book of Ephesians. Ah, Hebrews. How about that? That was a test. Yeah, I wanted to see if you know. Or it could be the weakness of my mind. Hebrews chapter 4. Trying to get everything straightened around up here. We're going to be looking at verses 14, 15, and 16. And I need my Bible. So I forgot everything. How about that? Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word, for how it has endured the test of time, how that gives glory to you and who you are. And now use it, Lord, to sculpt us, not just our minds, but our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. A Russian playwright, Anton Chekhov, wrote a simple short story called The Lament. It's about a man who drives a horse and buggy for hire through the city, and this buggy driver's uh, son dies unexpectedly, and he's devastated. And so, overcome with grief, he goes to work the day after the son dies and desperately wants to tell somebody about his son. So the first person that gets into the buggy is a wealthy man, and he steps into the carriage, and the old man turns to him and says, let me tell you about my son. And the wealthy man doesn't have time for that and gets out and leaves. He, he waits a little bit longer and, and the next man comes in. He gets in the buggy and, and the driver turns to him and says, please let me tell you about my son. And that man doesn't have time as well. And, and it goes on like that throughout the day. At the end of the day, the old man returns to the stable and, and unhitches his horse. And as he begins to brush down his horse... He turns to the horse and says, my son, let me tell you about my son. And he proceeds to tell the only person that will listen, the horse, about the death of his son, who his son was, and how much he meant to him. Where do you turn when you need a shoulder to cry on? Where do you turn when you just need to talk? Where do you turn when life is crushing you? Where do you turn when you need help right now? On our three simple verses that we're going to look at today, it's very clear. Turn to Christ. Look with me at verse 14. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Now, Hebrews is a difficult book to preach or teach in the sense that you, you can't just drop in like you can in other sections of Scripture. It's, it's really a sustained argument for about 11 chapters. The themes are deep, the themes are rich, and the themes are interconnected. In these three verses, the author returns to, to encourage his audience after a long warning about the danger of hardening your heart towards God. And that warning we've, we've completed over the last three or four weeks, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. And in them, he is, he's imploring these, these converted Jews not to give in to their temptation to turn their back on Christ. Just as the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness as he used in the previous chapter, did. So the author warns them, and by, by proxy warning us as well, be careful. You may not reach that promised rest if you harden your hearts. And encourages them in those verses as well to persevere, to keep going, looking forward to that rest. It's a big part of the Christian experience of perseverance, brothers and sisters. It is looking forward to that promised rest, looking forward to the inheritance of heaven that we're all promised as sons and daughters of God. Look at the horizon. Keep your eyes positioned up, not down, remembering the hope that is held for you, guaranteed in the future. It's what God told the exiles through the prophet Jeremiah. We all know that famous verse in 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. He's telling his people in times of a crushing defeat, exile, look forward. We're told that again and again in the New Testament, aren't we? In Romans 8, we're told the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Look forward. Indeed, that's one of the main reasons the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper that we're going to take together today. Yes, of course, it's a look back. But equally, it's a look forward. And both give us hope in a different way, don't they? R.C. Sproul, in this helpful book that, that I encourage you to pick up, it's in the back as with other, other books back there on the Lord's Supper. His book here is called, What is the Lord's Supper? He writes this, Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper in this world, we shouldn't only look back to, the Christ, to Christ's past accomplishments, but to the future feast that is yet to be fulfilled. So, brothers and sisters, persevere in this life looking forward. But what about the struggles right now? What about right now? Are you just left in the, in, in, in the wisdom of the New Testament to kind of white-knuckle it till you get to your promised land? Does he just want us to stiff upper lip it to glory? 
Does he, does he just want us to accept our lot in life with grim determinism? Is that what we're left with? Kind of one foot in front of the other, main stoicism? What about right now? I'm hurting right now. My, the pressure of my job is killing me, Pastor. Where's my help right now? My loneliness is crushing me. My life is spinning out of control. Where's my help right now? I have an aging body and a mind that's slipping. I've lost a loved one. I can't pay the rent or oil or electric bill. Where's my help right now? Like the old man driving the buggy, who can you turn to for help? Turn to Christ. You want a main point? Turn to Christ for your help now. He is your hope for the future, but he is your help for right now. I just want to mention three ways that these three verses give you help for right now. And the first one is we're helped by reminding ourselves we have the gospel. We have the gospel. That is help for right now. That's what verse 14 is telling us. If you look down, it says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The author comes right out of the gate with this encouragement to remember what Christ has done for us right now. Remember what Christ has done for us. That's what the reference to the high priest is right there. That's meant to convey who Jesus is and what he has done. This, this high priest theme is, is probably, if you look at the book of Hebrews as a whole, the main theme of which the author is unpacking throughout these 13 chapters. It's mentioned twice already back in chapter 2, verse 17. He's called our high priest who has given propitiation for our sins. And then in the very next verse, actually, in chapter 3, verse 1, we're told to hold fast to our apostle and high priest, Jesus Christ. And the author will go on to unpack this theme in, verse, in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. The high priest, as you may or may not know, I encourage you to go back and read about the high priest in Leviticus 9, Leviticus 10, Leviticus 16. The high priest was the people's mediator. He stood between God and his people who were sinful. His main duty came once a year when he entered into the Holy of Holies, that, that third inner, inner box, if you will, or, or area or geography of the temple, temple, the court of the Gentiles, then the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies, that perfect box that held the Ark of the Covenant, of which the high priest once a year would go in and sprinkle blood on top of that in between the angels' wings offer sacrifice for God to, to look down. It's very symbolic. Look down and see the blood and forgive the people. Isn't that beautiful? 
Leviticus goes on to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So he went in to atone for the people's sin, to sacrifice so that God's wrath towards sin and sinners would be appeased. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. We're going to come back to this again and again. Jesus fulfills that role that was meant to foreshadow Jesus' coming and his work. This is the great high priest of which the author talks about. He is great because he passed through the heavens. Verse 14, he had passed through the heavens. That is shorthand for he secured our salvation through his perfectly lived life. That's what verse 15 is going to turn to next. The doctrine of Christ's active righteousness. He did on our behalf. He lived the perfect life, the sinless life that God requires to make it into his presence. He's greater than the high priest in the Old Testament because that high priest had to make sacrifices for his own sin. But as he'll go on to talk about, Christ didn't have to do that. He lived the perfect life. So he's not only greater because of his perfectly lived life, he's greater through his perfectly given sacrifice. Greater than the earthly high priest. Because that earthly high priest had to go in year after year after year after year and make sacrifices for God's people. But Christ made one sacrifice sufficient for all. And greater through his resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead, but rose from the dead three days later, securing our salvation by passing through the heavens, his ascension to the right hand of God, as we just spoke in the Apostles' Creed. Have you ever wondered why the Apostles' Creed has that he ascended into heaven? Because it's talking about the security we have in the gospel. He completed it, he went home. And through this gospel, we are saved from God's wrath and hell. We are forgiven of our sins. We're adopted into God's family, as we just talked about earlier. We're treated as his sons. We're co-heirs with Christ. We have this future inheritance with God's presence, in God's presence for all time. And that is secured. That is is safeguarded. That is guaranteed. And how great is that? How great is that? How great is that? It is. There are times when we cry out because of the greatness of the gospel. If that just washes over you as intellectualism, I don't know, I don't know why you're here. It should move you. That's why the author implores his readers to hold fast to their confession. To hold fast to that gospel. Because it's secure. You know, Some of you have come to me over the, the weeks that we've been, pre, uh, been preaching through Hebrews and saying, what's our part of this? OK, 
okay, if he's done everything, then what? What do I do? Well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a piggyback ride. You gave your children piggyback rides, right? Or maybe you still do. The child holds on around your neck, right? But, but he can, or she can only hold on for so long. I mean, if you do that, they're going to slip away. What do you do? You grab their feet and hold on so that when they get tired and can't hold on anymore, you've still got them. That's a picture of what salvation is like. And that's a picture of what the Hebrew, author of the Hebrews is saying. Hold fast. Hold on. Do your best. Knowing that you will get tired. You will get crushed. And you know what? Your, your hands might slip, but God has got you. You're not going anywhere. Isn't that wonderful? So how does this help us right now, knowing that... that that he is that this gospel that we have this gospel that it's true and that we are secure how does it help us right now in this way i'd say when your struggles in life overwhelm you hold fast to your confession meaning preach this gospel to yourself hold fast preach this gospel to yourself See, the gospel takes away the main fear in your life, death. It solves the biggest problem you have, salvation. So in the depths of our struggles, whatever they may be, hold fast to your confession. Remind yourself of the gospel because that gives you grand scriptural perspective. Life might be really crushing you right now, but you need perspective on what is really the problem that you have and what really God did to solve that problem. Leif Anderson writes in Unlistened to Lessons of Life, he writes this, When I was a boy growing up in New York City, I was an avid fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He writes, in fact, I've never quite gotten over them leaving town. The arch enemy of my childhood was the New York Yankees. I'd seen them only on television and heard them only on the radio until my father invited me to skip school one day and go see a World Series game between the Dodgers and the New York Yankees. I'll tell you, it was one of the greatest thrills of my childhood, he writes. I remember sitting there, smelling the hot dogs and hearing the cheers of the crowd. I knew those Dodgers were going to shellac those Yankees. Unfortunately, the Dodgers never got on base. So my thrill was shattered. He writes, I tucked it away somewhere in my unconscious until as an adult I was in a conversation with one of those baseball statistics fanatics. I mentioned to him my experience that day and to my surprise he said this, you were there? You were there? the day Don Larson pitched the only perfect game in World Series history? I said, yeah, but we lost. I was so caught up, he writes, in my team's defeat that I missed the fact that I was witness to something greater. Sometimes we can get caught up in the minutiae of our lives. 
and rightly so. But we can't forget the big picture. That Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has solved the biggest problem we have. The biggest fear that we have. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He writes, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Did you see how he, what he says about our life? How he describes it? This light and momentary affliction. We sometimes get that reversed, don't we? We think of the incomparable difficulties of this life in, in that light and momentary eternity. It's the other way around. We must preach this gospel to ourselves because it is help for right now. Does it solve the struggle you're going through? Not necessarily. Does it make them go away? No. Does it pay the oil bill? Does it make you less lonely? Does it fix your marriage? Does it heal your body? If you preach the gospel to yourselves at those times of difficulty, it will give you the power of that perspective, a right perspective. The Dodgers might have lost, but the perfect game was pitched. Secondly, we have help right now because we have a great sympathizer. We have a great sympathizer in Christ. That's what verse 15 is unpacking for us. Look down there. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We do not have a distant God who sits back a stoic God who doesn't care, or an aloof God who doesn't think of our trials, but one who intimately understands how hard our struggles are in this life because he has experienced it. So he can understand what we're going through. Dr. Rahel Eckert developed what is called an age man suit. In order to help train young medical students to feel empathy for their older patients, the age man suit was created to simulate the physical consequences of aging. It consists of ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight and hinders colors, knee and elbow pads that stiffen joints, and a Kevlar vest that presses uncomfortably against the chest and padded gloves that hinder dexterity. Dr. Eckert says her aim was to allow young, energetic med students to really feel what it's like to be older in order to give them a greater sympathy for their patients. The incarnation was Jesus' age man suit. He came, he took on flesh. What's the doctrine? Fully man fully divine. He was fully man. 
The reason he took on flesh was to earn the righteousness that we could never earn. We just talked about that. To do something we could never do. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? It's the great transaction of the cross. But the help for right now is a byproduct of that. Perhaps that's the wrong way to say it, but it gets the point across. There's a byproduct of him coming and really living a fleshly life. Jesus really and truly understands our struggles and our temptations. Christ knows what it's like to be lonely. Remember that day when he turned to his disciples and said, you know, this, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Christ knows the temptation of fear. And, and he knows the sin of, of he, he knows the temptation of fear in that it tends to push you into self, self-sufficiency, doesn't it? I can do this. I'll, I'll solve this. That's the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? I mean, there he was. He was terrified, both spiritually and physically, I believe. But spiritually and physically. And that fear was pushing him to the in his temptation to go, you know what? Maybe I can have the crown without the cross. How can I do this? Maybe I run away. I mean, those are those were the temptations going through his mind. Yet he said, in the end, not my will, but yours. Christ doesn't know every single temptation. He doesn't know the, some of the temptations of age or marriage or child rearing. But that's not what this verse is saying. He knows temptation to its fullest extent. He knows what it's like to go beyond the limits when we cave. That's where his divinity comes in. And in that way, he knows it better than we do. If you've never read uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, or even if you have, read it again. It's wonderful. C.S. Lewis says this about Christ's temptation. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. Man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why he continues to write, bad people in one sense have know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Never finding out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man never, who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows what the full temptation really feels like. Isn't that amazing? It makes him a better high priest, a greater high priest. He resisted temptation to its fullest extent. He understands better than we do what we're going through in that sense. Does that make sense? 
the wrestling, the anguish, the fear, the frustration. And you know what that does? It gives him sympathetic resonance. I'm not a music person. I rely on Marty and and dear Mark and others. So I had to look this one up. You know, if you put two pianos right next to each other and you hit a C note, the other piano's C chords will begin to vibrate. That's really cool. That's That's what's happening in Christ's heart when we're going through something. We're in anguish. He has sympathetic resonance. Our heart is aching, so does his. We're struggling, he feels it. When we're in anguish, so is he. Because he knows what it's like. And that is help right now for us to understand, isn't it? From 1986 to 1990, a man by the name of Fred Reed, Frank Reed rather, along with journalist Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland, were held hostage in Lebanon. For months at a time, Reed was blindfolded. He lived in complete darkness or chained to a wall and kept in absolute silence. Months at a time. Although he was beaten and tormented, Reed felt most the lack of anyone caring, he wrote. He said in an interview with Time, nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of care around me. I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you're truly alone, he wrote. That's what makes this verse so powerful, brothers and sisters. Jesus cares. He has sympathetic resonance with our struggles. Just knowing that we are not alone in our struggles is a powerful, powerful force. Think about it. Okay, this last week, Eric went into the hospital, Eric Norberg, okay, with pain. Now, I went and visited him. It, and whether it's me or the elders or, or you, we go into the hospital and, and we can't do anything. Have you ever, have you ever, I never feel so helpless as when I go visit somebody in the hospital because I, I can't fix it. I'm not the surgeon. However much I'd love to be able to fix Eric, I couldn't. And he's in pain. But my presence there is powerful to him. Your presence there is powerful to him. Just knowing he's not alone. If you've ever spent... And this is my experience, maybe not yours. If you've ever spent time in a hospital and you wake up at like 2.13 in the morning, it is, as cl- for me, as close to hell as I want to be. It is like lonely. Lonely. 
What makes having Christ in your life even more powerful is that he not only is there with you, but he can do something. And that's what verse 16 is all about. We have access to action. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. First of all, we can come with confidence because of what Christ has done for us. Remember, the the high priest had to enter by first sacrificing for his own sin and then going in. How do we enter into that great holy of holies? Through prayer, through the sacrifice of Christ. That's part of what it means when we say the priesthood of all believers. We can go into that holy of holies. We have access. But for many Christians, our confidence is weak. Not because they don't think they have access, but because of that access. Listen to what Richard Phillips says. Many Christians struggle with prayer. Anybody here struggle with prayer? Many Christians struggle with prayer for different reasons. Many tremble as with stage fright, he writes, as if the light from God's throne will expose us in naked shame. When in fact it reveals the radiant robes that have been draped around us, the righteousness of Christ given to all who trust in him. See, I think some people, not all, but some people don't pray because they fear that exposure. It is. Christ is. It says, God is light. In him there is no darkness. It is, in a sense, like a spiritual x-ray when you go into God's presence. When you're here in God's presence, gathered believers, that's his promise, right? Two or three are gathered. There I am in their midst. Here is like a spiritual x-ray. You know what keeps some people away when they sin? Shame. As, a, as an elder, as a pastor, when people start to wander, when people start, I don't see them pretty consistently in worship. One of many things I think, one thing I think is, is there some sin going on here? Because this is like a spiritual x-ray. And it exposes you know, we just we just read God's word is a like a double edged sword, right? In one sense it is a spiritual X ray, but equally true, you have to remember what Galatians three twenty seven says that Christ has absorbed our sins and as a result we are clothed with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's what what Phillips is getting at. You know, when we come in here, yes, it is a spiritual x-ray, but then we have to look down and see Christ's righteousness. It's absorbed. It's forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? So there's no fear, no shame. Thus we can approach the throne boldly so that we may receive and find, receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, there's also help for right now here. Every time we cry out to our Lord in prayer, Christ's heart is touched, he has sympathetic resonance, and that propels him into action. 
propels him into action. If you've ever been stranded by the side of the road alone at night in the winter, I know it's pretty specific, and you're on that road and there's nobody around, and then somebody comes and and helps you fix that tire or takes you to the next station, and you're so relieved, thank you for that help. And then when next time you're driving down the road and you see that hood up, you remember what it was like, right? And although in my sinfulness I keep driving many times, it should propel us into action. Stop. Help. That's, that's, that's a weak, weak metaphor, but that's what Christ, it does with Christ. He just doesn't sit there and go, oh, poor Blake. Oh, my heart is breaking for Blake. He does something. When I come to him in prayer, approach the of mercy and grace boldly, he is propelled into action. And sometimes, as we pray, he is merciful. He withholds something we deserve. I mean, that's the definition of mercy, right? Withholding something we deserve. Here I want us to think about our sin just for a moment. Sometimes he is merciful. He withholds the consequences for our sin. Please, brothers and sisters, I hope you have experienced this. Because it means that you realize how sinful you are. He withholds consequences. It's amazing. Every sin deserves consequences. Sometimes he mercifully withholds those. But sometimes as we pray, he is gracious. He, he gives us something we don't deserve. That's the definition of grace. Sometimes he heals you physically, mentally, or emotionally. Sometimes you, you do get that job. Sometimes you do get that perfect transfer. Sometimes that relationship is healed. Sometimes you get an unexpected check in the mail for the oil or the electricity or the rent. Sometimes when you pray, God gives you what you don't deserve. And sometimes in his divine wisdom, his action of mercy and grace look wholly different than we expect. And I imagine that we can all relate to this. Sometimes... He just walks next to us in that valley. Right? He allows the suffering. This is, a, this is, this is not uh, an intro course here. He allows the suffering. Because he has a greater purpose in mind that we can possibly know of. I mean, he, he revealed that to Paul on the road to Damascus, didn't he? After he called him, he said, I will show him how much he will have to suffer for my name. He, he prepared him. He prepares us throughout the New Testament. If you're looking for your Christianity to be this, this easy walk to glory, I've got another thing for you. And so does God. It's a tough walk. Beautiful, glorious, fulfilling, purpose-filled, but a tough walk. One of the big reasons we have the book of Job that we are going to go to next, by the way, from the pulpit. Sometimes he answers our prayers for our good and for his 
glory in difficult ways. And that's a tough lesson. But one we need to learn and one that we learn through the Lord's table right here. It's another lesson for us right here in the Lord's table. Sometimes God's will is for difficult things to go through. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your your word. In spirit, I pray that you use it for our good and, and for your glory. Help us to succumb to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.